Hi, my name is Nate Bloom. I'm the executive director of the Nebraska Grain Sorghum Board and the Nebraska Sorghum Producers Association. I work for farmers who are growing a crop that is a healthy option for people, animals, and the planet. As a part of my job, I get to talk with some super interesting people who are doing some super interesting things on a regular basis. I learned so much from these conversations, and I thought you might enjoy them as well. Welcome to this episode of Sergeant Sorghum and his amazing friends. Uh, Dr. Benson. I would just say that the, the, the way we approach this from, from development of, of, of healthy and inexpensive food solutions domestically versus globally may not necessarily be the same, but we can also capitalize on some of the same components. Um, for example, if you look at you know, the power of crop genetics that's available uh, these days, it's a matter of where you aim that cannon. Do we aim that at traits that are important for doing things domestically, or do we aim that at traits that are important for doing things globally? And then being able to share that technology down the road, share the product of that uh, down the road uh, with developing countries so that they can, uh, you know, they can grow their own commodities there. So I, I think there's, there's some overlap between the large scale approach, but, but the effort has to be oriented and directed towards those ty different types of outcomes. Good answer, thank you. That's something we have to remember when we're talking policy, whether it's at the local level, level the state level uh, in the United States level, or in this case, the, uh, the United Nations global level, is that uh, solutions generally aren't a one size fits all. You have to take into account level the state level. Uh, Samuel, I'm Samuel. I'm going to case a one size fits. There you go. Um, anyway, so that's really important to consider. So uh, this next, oh Peter, I'm sorry, Dr. McCormick, I see you have your hand raised. Oh, you're muted still, Peter. Thanks, Nate. Too many buttons to unclick. Um, <laughs> Um, maybe just, uh, uh, this has got me thinking a little bit though. Some of the work we've been doing recently over the last, I've spent quite a bit in my career on this in terms of how you not, the what to do is, is that how you do it and around water and agriculture and how do you, in a developing country, in the different contexts, I, I'm really pleased to hear this on the, the appreciation for the different contexts and the challenges of understanding and, and getting, it really needs to be in the hands of the local the local people to to really get them to think through and be the entrepreneurs in that one of the things we we've been working on is the small scale farmers how to get their the irrigation capacity or irrigated agriculture or better rain fed management into their hands or into the farm family's hands and and it's some work we did with various partners that developed into this term farmer-led irrigation and, and not, i don't particularly like that term that way but the, the, the point here is really to put that idea that the farmer farm family is central to this and, and, and it has to to how do you get the, to, to produce sustainably so the, the environmental but also the business model around this how do you scale that up and I'm actually quite I think we're making progress in this space we've, we've done quite a bit around looking looking at how the many different pilots the many different things that different governments have done or different countries Rwanda being one of the case studies where we've 
we we've been quite involved in in, in this. Um, I see this. It's it's uh, uh, it it's moving forward in terms of as as we began. What we were trying to do was to get some of the investors, like the World Bank, to think about how they could invest in small scale agriculture because they tend to invest in larger scale projects, the water, the roads and, and so forth. How can you invest in the small scale farmers? And we were getting quite a bit of shift in that space. But one thing we ran into was with the various ministries in, this was mainly in West Africa, they really pushed back because they, to get the cheap food and, and, and the, uh, uh, they really looked at how to invest in large-scale irrigation. This is what they knew, large-scale irrigation, with farmers being more of the, the laborers in, that, in these systems, but they were, could be ensured they would get crops, but there wasn't a lot of entrepreneurial expertise in the middle of that. They could be sure they would get in, inexpensive rice or whatever crop they were growing, but they were not keen to reinvest. So they, they have a, a limited pot of funds they can reallocate. So the, the present food security strategies don't necessarily mesh well with the entrepreneurial opportunities and getting more of the small scale farmers involved in that. Sorry for the, the broad explanation there, but I think one of the issues around this, this sort of thing is even when you've got ideas that we can scale up to scale up, you run into some of these barriers at the institutional level that make it uh, a challenge. No, I think that's a great answer. Thank you, Dr. McCormick. And I would just note that Samuel made the comment in the chat box that we need to make sure that we're focusing also on preservation. And I think that's part of the reason why we're having these conversations, not just today, but uh, on a large scale, is because we do have to feed people, but at the same time, we need to conserve the environment. And we'll, we'll talk more about that later on. Vice Chancellor Baim, you had had your hand raised for a little while. Did you have something you wanted to add to this? Yeah, it goes on Peter's last point about the, the barriers. Um, you know, I think uh, some of this, it has to be local. We have to appreciate that um, even though we might have a viable solution for a particular dynamic, that uh, the complexities, things related to transportation, uh, power, um, electricity, um, internal policy, politics, policies get in the way from a from a international engagement strategy. I think uh, to Samuel's point about um, kind of a sustainable uh, outcome, we need to be thinking about um, those those organizations that are engaging, um, perhaps well intended. Think about what the reward structure or the incentive structure looks like. So, you know, go back to the pumps, for example, uh, for water, Peter. It's one thing to put X number of pumps. Uh, where do you put the pumps? How long will those pumps operate? Are they breaking down? And so our incentive and reward structure needs to be looking at the, the, the long durable solution rather than just the immediate get in and supply something and get out kind of a a dynamic, lots of complexities. Yep. Thank you. Um, I'm going to jump questions here. Uh, so if, if the panelists are following on the document that I said, I'm going to jump a question here um, because I think this makes sense to follow up with this. Because I think this makes sense to follow up. Hang on, let's make sure we're muted, okay? Um, all right, how can we best facilitate 
healthy food aid, entrepreneurial training, and robust education within the developing world. So, you know, this this speaks to the uh, give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. Give a man a, or teach a man to fish, he'll never be hungry again. So how, how can we best facilitate that healthy food aid, entrepreneurial training, and robust uh, ag education within the developing world? And uh, if we're throwing folks under the bus, I'll throw Dr. Rosati under the bus a little bit because this is what they're doing at RICA. Um, so maybe you can discuss some of some of how you're addressing that at your program, sir. Sure, it's a uh, um, we we have a number of approaches. Uh, of course, it starts with a source of good funding. Frankly, uh, so we have uh, the the Buffett Foundation behind us, and that allows us to do some things that uh, we might not be able to do otherwise. Another important component is to have a stable local government and and the support of that government and we we enjoy that support also uh, and then within the educational program it's a faculty with a focus on entrepreneurship uh, the facilities that i've mentioned so uh, it's hands-on training uh, our students are running commercial farms we have the minister of agriculture talk to us about how the other agricultural universities in this country um, it's textbook learning, it's classroom learning. They don't actually go out into the field. They don't handle animals. They don't uh, drive equipment. Uh, and uh, she pushes us pretty hard to focus on technical skills. Uh, and then it's partnership with the private sector. So our students don't always come to us with an appreciation for agriculture, frankly, but they get exposed to people who've made a significant profits in agriculture and at the same time lowered the cost of food uh, and that uh, turns them on to the fact that uh, there's some good uh, good opportunities uh, within the country. So um, I don't know that that those examples that I've mentioned are realistic for everyone because uh, again some of it is based on funding sources but when those sources are available and and we make a concerted effort to focus on hands-on training, business development, producing low-cost, abundant, and available food, I think we can make significant. Sorry, you froze up, Dr. Rosati. There you go. That's okay. We got it, I think. Well, one of the other skills uh, and, and uh, items that we need is good internet throughout the, the country. We've, we've worked hard at this institution uh, but I'm speaking to you from my, our campus in a rural area of Rwanda. Uh, and, and frankly, it's uh, the, this internet, this level of internet is pretty good for our region, but we still have a little ways to go. I hate to say it, Dr. Rosati, but that uh, the, your internet connection is better than some parts of Nebraska, actually. Mm. So, uh, Sujala, you've got your hand up. Uh, I am going to add to this just from my experience growing up in India, and uh, I also attended an agricultural university in India uh, for my undergraduate degree. Um, entrepreneurship was never a part of my dream in my entire four years of undergrad education there. Uh, I think there is uh, maybe in the, in the recent few years, there is a lot more, a uh, lot more talk about entrepreneurs uh, and influence of the, the Silicon Valley uh, in uh, spreading to India and uh, concept of entrepreneurship is becoming more seen as cool these days. But uh, again, I think it's important to 
kind of incorporate the entrepreneurial education as uh, as a, as an example or as a big influence in how uh, how we that can be part of um, part of the training programs if uh, there is something in planning. Um, even though entrepreneurial training exists in specific uh, university-related institutes or um, uh, business courses, it's it's more theoretical and uh, not as practical. So, and when I say practical as well, I think uh, just, uh, I, I can't remember who mentioned it at the, the beginning of this panel, uh, talking about solutions being local. I think depending on the geography, we can develop local solutions through entrepreneurship, but the, the, the inspiration I think is missing uh, and the training is missing. I, I, and I think we also need more, more examples, more, maybe more, um, more highlight highlighting of uh, the one the opportunities available and uh, how entrepreneurship can not only solve solutions and bring um, add to the economy locally, but tapping into the local resources uh, to to create uh, companies or uh, create new initiatives. I think uh, needs to be shine more light on. Yeah, that's you. Know, I think you're spot on. And Seth, I'll get to you in just a moment, but. I just want to backtrack. I want to re I want to reread this question because I think this is a really important question, and I think it gets at the the very heart of some of the components um, around equitability that these sustainable development goals are really trying to achieve. So again, it's how can we best facilitate healthy food aid, entrepreneurial training, and robust ag education? And I'd expand that just to education in general within the developing world. Um, you know. When 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 people are prosperous, they're you know they're successful, and they start to look at uh, the world in in ways in which um, we can work together rather than maybe becoming radicalized or or having to focus on only where their next meal's coming from, and that's when we see communities start to do better. So people don't necessarily have the capacity to learn the best unless they've got a full belly. So we've got to start with the food piece. And then we can add the training and the example, uh, the local examples um, and the education piece. And then from there, I think we start to see uh, historically uh, that that's where societies really begin to thrive. It's almost like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but on a uh, community level um, is, is kind of how I view it. So I think this is a really important question. Uh, Seth, go ahead now that you've heard me. Thanks, Nate. done efforts in the developing world, uh, especially around the education part, Nate, uh, more than the other two. I would say the organizations that we've seen uh, that have seemed to have more of a significant impact uh, than others, um, the things that I see that are common across those is, one, they have a, a long-term vision for what they're trying to impact uh, versus uh, kind of a, a short-term um, uh, something they want to get done, they've got money, they, they have good intent. Uh, but it's a little like Tom when he talked about entrepreneurs. Uh, people get kind of fired up with an idea, they go think they're going to go change the world, and they get in there and realize, gosh, there's, there's some wisdom in there, folks who have uh, kind of been there on the ground doing the work, and how do you partner with and uh, leverage the systems, um, but have a clear vision of, of where to go and and uh, really kind of 
use the local expertise to drive things forward. I know that uh, um, and part of it is, you know, um, same in the in the United States, same here in Nebraska. We have folks in the ag industry who, when they go to talk to their school administrators, uh, it's two different worlds trying to communicate to one another. Uh, and it's, uh, sometimes it's just a language barrier, understanding systems and how things uh, work. And the same thing is true, what we found in the developing world is a lot of times, uh, and there's a lot of resources available, but uh, folks uh, in terms of finding out who those, uh, what, how those systems work and uh, having appreciation for the local context can really help have long-term sustainability around efforts uh, where maybe it doesn't take as much money uh, because you're uh, you've got uh, you're leveraging some systems and resources that are already there and available. So uh, just that's some lessons that we've learned in working with folks who are trying to do this work um, uh, in the developing world. That's great. Thank you, Scott. Cindy. Um, I just wanted to mention that I'm in India. I visited uh, the National Institute of Food Technology, Entrepreneurship, and Management, and um, I was outside of New Delhi, and I was very impressed with the vision of that school and, and um, the forethought that went into developing um, an institute, a national institute such as this to address food technology and entrepreneurship. Um, I think that was probably a good blueprint for, for a lot of developing countries as far as a higher education. Um, I also experienced when I've traveled to many countries that the universities in other countries, they want to partner with the University of Nebraska, um, INR, in, you know, in, in their research and development and also student exchanges. And um, so I think there's a lot of opportunities out there for education um, in, in our foreign exchange student programs. Um, the other thing that I'm gonna talk about was that the question was how to best facilitate healthy food aid. Um, you know, I found that in, in a lot of, it's counterintuitive, a lot, in, uh, a lot of refugee camps, the people that are in those camps, there's 26 million people in refugee camps around the world right now. Um, there's some very, very large ones. And, and these are people who were displaced, you know, from environments or, or uh, crisis in their countries, conflicts in their countries. And initially they are internally displaced before they're externally displaced in these refugee camps. And you would think that whatever food you offered would, would be the food that they want to eat, but that's really not true. They, the, the people in refugee camps want to stick to traditional diets and um, because those are the foods that they've always eaten. Uh, for instance, if we were offered food from a foreign country that we've never experienced before, I don't know um, how happy whether we would eat it or not, but, but this is the case in refugee camps. So. Uh, one thing is that to develop different types of food aid um, for different uh, geographical areas that are in need of food aid. Um, the other thing is to develop food aid. Uh, a lot of the food aid that we offer now um, is like a porridge or you need to um, add water to it to hydrate it. And um, in these refugee camps, you know, you don't have access to water. And um, if you did, you don't have a bucket. To put it in, those are our premium. So to develop a moist food aid, um, like a uh, that does not need water to constantly, you know, to to hydrate it, would be very beneficial um, in the area of healthy food aid. So healthy food aid 
has to be food aid that they are, are uh, it's part of their traditional diet so that they will eat it. Um, and the other part is that so they have um, the proper tools um, to, to, to provide that food uh, that doesn't require water or, or any type of hydration for them to eat it. And, um, and this addresses a lot of problems as far as uh, wasting or malnutrition or stunting in some of these refugee camps where it's very prevalent. So it's the type of food aid that, that is, uh, is um, how to, how to uh, eat that food aid in refugee camps. Um, that we really need to concentrate on here if we're going to develop a food aid product for developing countries. Great. And yeah, speaking of food aid and uh, speaking of traditional diets, uh, one thing that we've got our eye on uh, presently in regard to sorghum is that there's not presently a sorghum-based uh, food in the USAID mm -hmm. food basket. Um, it's something we'd like to address because it is part of traditional diets around the world. Um, and that'll kind of lead into actually to our next question too, because we also know that there are some health benefits uh, to having sorghum um, in, in the diet. And this will be a question uh, directly for Andrew Benson. Um, and Liz, we'll get, to, we'll get to you too, but I think this all fits into kind of the same. So um, the, the question is, uh, <laughs> for the rest of us, Dr. Benson, explain the importance of the gut microbiome on human health and can you talk a little bit about the work that you've been doing at the Food for Health Center in regard to sorghum and what that looks like? Well, I'll try to do this quickly so that we can get to other questions because uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about that. But <laughs> just quickly know that uh, essentially when you're born, you're born sterile and you enter an environment that is filled with uh, microorganisms and your body uh, begins to be colonized by those microbes very early in life. And the large proportion of the microbes are found in the gastrointestinal tract, most of them in the lower GI tract down in the colon. Now, that population evolves a little bit over life, uh, your period of life. Early in life, they're feeding largely on um, polysaccharides that are coming from breast milk, some components of breast milk and breastfed infants, or that are coming from cow's milk, depending on whether they're formula fed or not. Um, those organisms play really important roles in setting the stage for how this complex community assembles. Because ultimately there's hundreds to thousands of different microbial species that are present there. Um, and their total population numbers in somewhere between the tens to hundreds of trillions of cells. So they outnumber the cells in your body. Now, that's, that's what the microbiome is. What does it do? Well, very early in life, one of the things it does is it prevents you from being colonized by the bad organisms, those that would cause disease, enteric diseases. And so if that, doesn't, that microbiome doesn't form properly, you're susceptible to several different types of enteric diseases. It also plays really important roles in training your immune system. So your immune system does not develop normally unless you have an intact, very functional gut microbiome. Um, and thirdly, the obvious thing is that it also helps degrade and break down components in your food. And in fact, it turns some of those components into energy that's usable by your body. Fiber is the greatest example of that. Dietary fibers are components in our, in our, in our diets 
that literally go right through our body. Our body cannot degrade those. The microbes living in our colon, however, are very good at degrading those. And they degrade those for their own energy, but they also convert that into forms of energy that can be used by your gastrointestinal tract. So these microbes, that's just three examples of things that they're doing that are promoting our health. When those organisms get out of balance, that's when we start seeing diseases show up. And within the last 10 years, the tools to study and understand the microbiome have really become available actually the last 15 years now. And one of the things that's been learned by this field is that when the microbiome becomes out of whack, that's when you see association with many different types of diseases, ranging from metabolic diseases, obesity, diabetes, great examples, to inflammatory diseases, such inflammatory bowel disease. Um, those are just a few, but it's a wide range of diseases. And in some cases, we know that it's actually causal, meaning that 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 uh, misconfigured microbiome is actually contributing to the disease itself. So this is a great opportunity for us. And then again, this is something we've learned in the last 15 years, because the microbiome and all these, this dense population of organisms in the gut eats the same food that we eat, we have an opportunity to start to rethink about the types of foods that we're putting into our bodies. So that we're feeding not just the upper GI tract, but also the whole body, meaning all the organisms in the lower GI tract as well, and promoting the healthy ones uh, to grow there. So hopefully that, that, uh, that gives you an answer of what it does to promote health. What we're doing in, in the Food for Health Center, and one of the things in particular we've done with sorghum, is to use genetic analysis in the sorghum to identify components of sorghum that are actually contribute to feeding those organisms. And I, I won't bore you with how we do that, but just trust me, we can. Um, we've developed uh, technologies that enable us to do that. And what that would allow the sorghum breeders to do would be to breed for a really novel trait. That would be a health promoting trait. Um, idea is that you can inc increase or enhance the amount of this uh, particular product or products the plants are producing. That would ultimately go into the food. That food then when consumed would stimulate the proper or beneficial organisms to grow in the gastrointestinal tract and therefore reduce your, uh, your susceptibility to disease. Uh, so we're playing that game in sorghum. Essentially, we're playing that game in, in, in virtually all of the Nebraska commodities. I hear we have the Dry Bean Commission representation here. We're playing this in game in maize. Um, so virtually all the commodities we're, we're playing this game with. And we're at a very early stage, but the idea is to not just discover these components, but to translate them into foods uh, that can be used or, or developed both uh, locally or domestically, but even perhaps those that can be used globally as well. Uh, so I'll stop there. Very good, thank you. And again, much respect to all of our uh, Nebraska commodity groups. We work very well with them. Um, however, I, I work for sorghum, so that's who I get to talk about. But we do, we do enjoy working with everyone else as well. Um, no, no single solutions. There's room for all of us in, in the market opportunities uh, for sorghum, or for, uh, sorry, for commodities. Uh, Dr. Van Wormer, you had your hand up uh, earlier, uh, and I, I know you're, with your work on health, I wonder if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about uh, what it means to uh, be able to have healthy foods and healthy options um, in, in uh, some of these developing countries. 
Well, I was, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that too. I was going to follow up on Cindy's point, if that's okay too, about international partnerships and education. And um, I think one of the really critical points here that I like to think about is what does it mean to be a good partner? And I think that's something that is great to ask ourselves and to think about how we engage, whether it's in Nebraska or across the world. And so, you know, we can ask what, what can we share, but also what can we learn? Because I think a lot of the solutions that we co-develop, whether we're talking about an educational program or an entrepreneurial idea or some sort of technology are really, um, that's where you have so much um, room for creativity and for expansion and for from learning across cultures. So I just wanted to follow up. I thought Cindy's point was really nice about that too. And for the health side, um, so One Health is really focused on these connections between human and animal and plant and ecosystem health. So I think here for the, for the idea of healthy foods, we can ask what's healthy for people, but we can also ask what's healthy for the system that the food is grown in and how it's distributed and how it impacts not only you know, communities and culture, but also the natural resources. So we know that the way that we shape our agricultural systems changes the interactions with habitats around that and interactions with you know, wildlife and domestic animals and people. And so I think that one of the exciting facets in this for me is asking the question just more broadly, what does a healthy food system mean and how can we play a role in shaping that? Very good, thank you. And speaking of sustainability and food systems, I think uh, let's let's start talking a little bit about uh, the Nebraska agriculturalist or or uh, the Western Hemisphere farmer. Uh, so farmers are the original and best conservationists and stewards. How can we help to ensure that their ideas and existing practices are helping to inform policy conversations related to environmental sustainability? And I think this question is largely directed at um, you know, some trends in other parts of the world that are kind of rejecting uh, technology and agriculture, um, maybe without scientific merit necessarily. Anybody like to answer that question? Yeah, Anne, go ahead. Well, that's the core and the essence of why U.S. Farmers and Ranchers in Action was established. About nine to 10 years ago, all the major commodities in the United States got together and said, you know, agriculture in general is really taking a beating and people are not accepting um, whether it be, um, you know, genetic modifications in these seeds or the type of farming and uh, all these things. And they said, if we work collaboratively and with partnerships, you know, we'll have a much greater voice. And so that's really the idea and the mission that USFRA was established under. And so what we've been doing over the last two, so, you know, it's a, it's a shift in that we need um, a further acceptance of these amazing innovations that we have developed, you know, through research at universities like we have at, you know, the University of Nebraska companies, large uh, companies that develop products that just enable us to uh, produce more product with less resources, which is really the core of sustainability. And a lot of these UN uh, goals. You know, how can we get to zero hunger? Well, I think if we really utilize these uh, technologies that are available and with an understanding that things 
are, you know, have been researched and developed safely and, um, you know, tested. So uh, we've been working for two years and brought top leaders along the food and agricultural sector together and at a signature event called Honor the Harvest. And much like this, a working group, you know, what are our goals? Where do we want to be as uh, production agriculture in this country or in North America? And, you know, a lot of our visions wrap around the same ideas. You know, we want, we want uh, a safe food supply, uh, you know, using less resources, battle climate change, good use of water and, and soil. So all these things wrapped around and we've developed a vision called the decade of ag. And I would challenge uh, each of you to take time, I'll put it in the chat where you can find out more. And what if we take the public image of agriculture into a positive image where we are as caretakers and stewards of the land, soil and water as farmers are really the solution to climate change. Um, you know, you see all these statistics and you see, uh, you know, uh, battling animal agriculture. Well, if we truly, under a united front with collaboration and partnership, can be the solution to climate change because we know that by the practices of farming through research, you know, practices that you can use the term regenerative ag, but there's certain practices that we know cover crops, no-till farming, you know, returning, uh, setting some uh, forestry aside. So we know these things can actually capture carbon and sequester it in the soil. So we have this immense power in agriculture. So we developed this vision that says, you know, we all want this resilient, restorative, economic, viable, climate smart agriculture system that produces abundant and nutritious food, natural fiber and clean energy. And then we can have a vibrant prosperous America. And it, the more that we can unite around this movement, I think we can begin to change public perception of what agriculture is and the services we provide. I think that the um, uh, restrictions we had under last year under the pandemic, everyone became so much more aware of their food. We had disruptions in the, in the food supply system. We, had, we have disruptions throughout. So we're at a perfect opportunity now to help the public understand who we are in food production and how we can be part of the solution as we begin to uh, change our practices to actually fight climate change. We're doing a lot now, but we can continue on this journey. Very good. Thank so you. So that's what I have. <laughs> that's my comment. No, that's fantastic. And we'll have a follow-up question to that, but I see Kira has her hand up as well. Yeah, I just, uh, I guess I wanted to express appreciation for uh, the statement of farmers being stewards. And I think that that's just a point that we all need to really keep in mind. I mean, if anyone is connected to the land, it's farmers. Their, their livelihoods absolutely depend on it. And so they are acutely aware, probably more acutely than many of us, of the challenges that um, you know, need to be overcome, the, the, the fact that there are dwindling resources and that there really is this, this increased need for production. So they're very aware of these things. And as a whole, you know, they're, they're working to make the land better 
than when they started farming. And, you know, they're stewarding these ecosystems. They, they know that their operation is part of these ecosystems, whether it be the wildlife, whether it be the soils. I mean, they're, they're seeing them every single day. They're, you know, they are observing with their own eyes what is, what is on that farm and how things are changing through the seasons. Um, and, and so they're, they're constantly working in this process of um, recognizing these things and trying to find that balance of really being able to ensure the environmental sustainability of their farms because you know they know that if their farm is not environmentally sustainable its longevity is compromised and so they're working for this environmental sustainability but then at the same time you know they're having to also um you know be very real and and aware of their economic sustainability because if if their practices and if their farm is not economically sustainable then it's not going to be there next year they're not going to be able to to um, farm the the following season so they're kind of always in this in this constant um balancing act between between those those two and you know luckily there are a lot of things and, and Anne just kind of mentioned a number of those there are a lot of things out there that can be done that really hit both of those that hit that sweet spot between that economic sustainability and the environmental sustainability, you know, and those are the things that, um, you know, that, that I think a, a lot of uh, groups and a lot of, of um, organizations and companies are really trying to, to work hard at, at elevating and creating opportunities through that. Um, but, you know, I think, again, just, just kind of reiterating, farmers are very, very aware of what's going on around them. And, you know, they really need to be a very active part of all conversations when they're looking for solutions. Um, you know, earlier in the conversation, there are a lot of things that there are a number of comments uh, made about, well, sometimes when you talk to those individuals that have been working in an area that have that wisdom, you know, you see that there are perhaps different challenges than what you had anticipated. And I think the same goes for, for agriculture. And so, you know, that I, I really, you know, applaud Anne and, and USFRA in terms of bringing that voice to the table and, uh, you know, really being a part of of making sure that that growers are, are part of the solutions, um, you know, whatever those may look like. Well, I think you're 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 spot on um, when we talk about farmers being uh, the original and best conservationists. Um, but I, I would only add one thing: it's not just their livelihoods that is is dependent upon those practices, um, but something more fundamental, actually, and that's legacy. Um, and I'll just give you a personal example. Hopefully, it's not too personal for this conversation, but. Um, when my father passed away unexpectedly and uh, the management of the farm fell to me, uh, you know, the immediate uh, thoughts were around, this is a fourth generation family farm. My great grandfather had his chapter. My grandfather had his chapter. My father had his chapter. What does my chapter look like? You know, am I going to leave it better than I found it? You know, so there's, there's a fundamental identity um, in, in some of these farms uh, that's personally tied to the health and well-being of the land and resources. And I suspect that that's not just true in the United States. I suspect that is a point of familial pride that transcends language barriers and boundaries and borders. So, um, but that does dovetail into our next question. And Anne and Kira, your hands are still up, so I'm just going to put you on the hook for these, this question too then. Um, so what do you see as the role of technology in further enhancing the sustainability of, in, produ in production agriculture? And what advances in agriculture can help mitigate climate change and reduce carbon? We talked about this a little bit, but can you expand on that? And who would you like to go first? <laughs> sure. Either way, uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll dive in. Um, 
You know, absolutely technology plays a role. And I think when um, all eyes are focused on the potential that we have in agriculture, then the research needs to be focused there to further advance this. I mean, we know that um, certain practices will capture carbon and we know certain practices begin to increase soil health and, and then therefore increase production. But if we can, all hands on board, dive in to furthering the research that we have. USFRA is partnering with F, uh, Foundation for Food and Ag Research for a major national push called Ag Mission to further the research to begin to measure um, carbon capture. You know, we have lots of ways we can do it. We're in the beginning stages. It's very scattered now, but we can do that. I did want to um, compliment Kira and how well she spoke about farmers. And I just wanted to add, yes, we need the, uh, you know, uh, stewardship and the, uh, the, the sustainability needs to be economic and also environmental. But we're also doing work saying, okay, if we truly uh, believe in this environmental sustainability, then perhaps the entire food chain needs to take on some of the risk rather than just the farmer. When we change practices, um, you know, that, that brings a new, you know, uh, all kinds of risk. If we start to uh, change, you know, plant cover crops, are we going to lose production in our cash crop? So what if we uh, all along the value chain began to contribute to these goals of uh, more production with greater uh, environmental impact? So we're also working on projects um, like that, and one of them is called the transformative investment to climate smart agriculture. So um, lots of ways we can do that. I'll pass it back to you. Yeah, uh, you know, when you when you think real, real specifically um, around the role of technology in regards to sustainability and production ag, you know, I, I think that when we think about the opportunities um, and the information that are being made available by technology, it's it's really exciting. You know, we're seeing how the role of data, um, how that's changing, it's improving how we farm, um, how we manage our resources, and and really from my perspective, for the overall betterment of the environment and, and our ecosystems. You know, um, some specific examples. The first one I think that comes to a lot of people's mind is really in the area of nutrient management. Um, you know, I think we're all well aware of the potential negative impacts caused when the fertilizers, fertilizers that are placed on a field uh, don't stay where they're supposed to stay and either they run off or leach into water sources or they volatilize into the atmosphere's greenhouse, greenhouse gases. And, you know, the proper management of nutrients can really significantly reduce and prevent those negative impacts. And, and technology really has a very important role to play um, in that management. Um, because really what's, what's necessary and what's very, very helpful is a very precise management technique to each acre. And so, you know, in order to be able to kind of zero in with that laser, laser sharp focus on um, specific parts of the field to really get a sense of what is needed there. Um, are there any particular um, characteristics of that part of the field, for example, that maybe you, you see, you know, whether it be through um, 
a number of the precision ag tools that are available. Yield monitoring, monitoring could be um, grid soil sampling, variable rate application, those types of things. You know, you're able to potentially observe areas where maybe you have more um, erosion. And so you could anticipate that could be an area where you have potential runoff issues. You can also monitor, are there areas where, um, you know, you're, you, you really seem, are seeing um, the crop lacking in nutrients, or you're seeing that in fact, it's doing just fine. And that allows you to adjust little by, you know, as you go, how much really needs to be placed there so that you're not over applying and we're not potentially um, having negative impacts from that. And so, you know, that's one role where we see technology really playing that um, an, an important um, job in helping to manage those nutrients. So we get the nutrients where we need them, we can optimize our production, but we don't put on too much and we really try and, you know, keep our, our, our levels conservative as well. And so that really is that is that environmental stewardship via that technology. Um, another one is in water management. Uh, according to the USDA, 80 to 90% of the consumptive water use in the United States is through, uh, is being used for from by agriculture. That's, that's a lot. And so, you know, we know that we really need to be conserving our water to, and be as responsible with our water as we can. And so, you know, there are a number of technologies now that are available that really allow, um, you know, individuals and, and farms to be able to do that. So, I mean, clearly there are some uh, crops that are particularly water smart and, and I will certainly, you know, we're talking, we've talked about sorghum a lot today. Sorghum is, is definitely a, um, a very resource conserving crop, but from a technological standpoint, um, you know, you have much more efficient irrigation technologies that really help to make sure that that water is, is being placed as close to the ground as possible. So it's not evaporating or it's, it's being placed um, at a rate that is positive or that, that is um, appropriate. So it's not running off fields. So you're really getting the infiltration of that water and you're using it as best as you can. Um, you also have, again, these variable rate systems that are out there that have this real-time data where, where farmers can really, um, you know, observe through soil probes what's happening in the soil, how much moisture is there. They time it with the growing patterns of that particular crop, and, and they're able to put water on when it is needed, right, and when it makes the most difference to the crop performance, so really efficiently using that resource. And then kind of just as a whole, from a whole systems perspective, you know, there, there's a lot of farm management, um, there are farm management softwares and other types of technologies out there that really allow farmers to analyze their, their farming system as a whole. And so as a part of that, they can look from field to field, from acre to acre, they can see where does their management attention really need to go. And so you know, they can be looking at what's happening from an, envir uh, from an environmental standpoint across their uh, across their farm, they can be looking at, are there areas where perhaps are appropriate for things such as conservation practices, uh, which can obviously have benefits to wildlife. And a lot of this technology and this data that they pull together allows them to be very strategic in choosing that so that really they're, they're able to kind of treat their entire farm as this, as this broader landscape. So, you know, lots of, lots of implications, whether it be soil health, whether it be wildlife, um, a, a lot of different things. Very good, thank you, Kira. Dr. Rosati. Well, I thought Kira mentioned some, some great examples, uh, simulated some thoughts of some simple pragmatic examples uh, from the perspective of our small-scale farmers here in Rwanda. Uh, the, the role of technology um, in further enhancing their, their sustainability of production agriculture. And one of those roles is, is simply information exchange. 
So uh, in, in the uh, time of COVID, we've learned how to communicate online around the world. And our farmers are using that capability to develop markets, to network. Uh, we have a local farmer who's developed an export market for habanero peppers in China, and he's getting quite wealthy off of those export markets. So the availability of that simple technology, the internet, is opening up markets that these farmers have not had before. And uh, it's been quite lucrative for some of them. Another, another simple uh, role for technology is in money movement. So um, frankly, it wasn't until I got to Rwanda a couple of years ago that I started sending money with my phone. So small entrepreneurs here exchange money and buy goods simply using their cell phones. So they might not even have a bank account, but they move money back and forth with their phones. It's called mobile money in Rwanda. And I think it's in the States now, Venmo, I think, or there might be some other systems, but it's, it's very common now. It's the way people, instead of using a credit card, they use their phone to exchange money. So it's a simple, simple piece of technology, but it facilitates the sale of produce from our local farmers. And a third, a third straightforward technology, of course, is the genetics of seed, which we've talked about before. And um, I'm currently working in a country that does not allow GMOs. And as a result, uh, this is the first time in a long time I've seen fall armyworm and, and maize crop and, and some other, some other uh, examples like that of insect damage that we haven't seen in quite a while in, in, in the US. Uh, so access to some of that technology that's already there. Um, sometimes some, some countries look to the example of, of Europe rather than the US and they see that some European countries take a different approach to uh, uh, some, some of this technology and they follow that example. Um, it's my impression that the US tends to be a bit more liberal in the use of some of the technology. Um, and that example is not always followed across the world. Very good, thank you. Um, we've got about 14 minutes left before I wanna open it up to public questions. So if you're not on the panel and you're participating and would like to ask a question, Go ahead and put it in the chat box. Now is your time to shine. So go ahead and get those questions in there. Uh, for the panelists, in the next 14 minutes, we're gonna go lightning round. Um, so if you're not familiar with that, that just means I'm gonna kind of jump around a little bit, ask a couple of questions, um, and then let's see if we can target them really quick. Uh, we have more questions uh, prepared than I think we'll have time for, which is a good and a bad problem to have. So I'm gonna jump down actually here uh, to Dr. McCormick's questions first. And Dr. McCormick had a couple questions I think that could be put together. Um, so I'm gonna put you on the spot, Peter, here we go. Sure. What is the relationship between global food security and water security and how has this been considered in the SDGs and how is this progressing? Um, well, uh, thanks, Nate. The, in terms of I think it's come out in this panel session today, the relationship between food security and the context is complicated. In each situation, we need to understand that, that relationship in, in that particular context with the partners. And equally, when we add in something as complicated as water, the relationship between food and water, both in terms of what you can do at, at any given time and then how that's going to vary over time in, in that context uh, varies. Uh, I think, the example I would give in terms of Nebraska in terms of water, water quantity management, Nebraska has done a, a, a very good job in terms of the technology and, and the, uh, uh, how that has been developed. And then realizing that you had to then sustain that resource, the, 
the institutional development around the natural resources districts and so forth, that's pretty unique and, and has been quite successful. And there's contrasting examples where the technology has been implemented and, and uh, uh, used and addressed the food security issue, but then the water security issue hasn't been addressed in the certain parts of India, which have really struggled with this piece. So it's uh, the, the, that, that, that's this, this, it really depends on the local context, but then also how the local, is there a political will to address some of these issues and, and then manage that going forward. And, and I posted something earlier, just uh, I, I'll send it again, but around the uh, a study we did in Nebraska, looking at the crop per drop, how, how much uh, food is being produced per drop of water. And what was really quite surprising there is there is this upward trend you see, and it's not around the technology, it's actually more to do with the crop breeding, the technologies, not, not the pivots, it's around the, the crop breeding the, the, and, and the on-farm management practices that has allowed this 30-year trend of, of uh, uh, increasing production per drop of water in, uh, in Nebraska. Unfortunately, we didn't consider sorghum in that study. We looked at corn and, and uh, um, soybeans, but I, I'm sure the same, the same is true of the soybeans under rain-fed and irrigated, uh, with sorghum under rain-fed and and uh, irrigated as well. In the SDGs, in, in developing the SDGs, these inter, the, the idea was to be able to uh, work across these SDGs. So water, there's water connections into many of the other SDGs, but water and food, that's SDG two and SDG six. These were the, the important uh, uh, connections that we, we were paying particular attention to. They, they were incorporated when then you go down into underneath the, uh, um, uh, the actual terminology of the SDG itself, the, 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 the indicators that were developed were, were not the ideal indicators around there in, in terms of what was considered water efficiency was what was looked at in, in agriculture in under SDG six. And then within the SDG two, they didn't, uh, the, the water piece was discussed and it was looked at and how to include that. But then in the end, it, it wasn't really put in as an indicator. Nevertheless, there's, there's quite a bit of work has gone on in ensuring those two SDGs talk to each other, shall we say. Progress, again, because of this contextual issue, it's been difficult to compare across countries, across uh, 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 different contexts, but certainly examples like Nebraska, like pl places like the Punjab in India, where there has been success in some of these areas, but other, uh, other challenges, that's what, where we need to spend um, more time understanding those. But, and then when it comes to comparing, we, what we must then understand is the value of a drop of water or the utility of that drop of water, say in Nebraska, compared to say the Middle East, it's quite different. And so the, the capacity here in Nebraska or in the, in the Midwest to produce food with that, that, uh, that water makes a lot of sense to try and produce feed for livestock in the Middle East where water is very scarce. It's an area where uh, it, it is very challenging to do that. And it's, it's uh, mistakes have been made in the past. And Dr. McCormick, what's the, uh, the one key message you would give to policymakers in regard to water uh, sustainability? Um, I, I think it's really to, 
I think under these present circumstances, a fixation on the efficiency piece and, and, and so forth, but it really is how we use it, how we manage it is, is, is very important in the agricultural context. And that's something that it's, again, it's, it has an institutional component. It has this stewardship component with the farmers and how they then manage that. And, and, and the other parts of, of the equation. So it's how, how, we, how we manage that in that given landscape, because it's different for each, each landscape rather than trying to prescribe something from, from a global level. Very good, thank you. And I think that's a common theme, again, uh, for this call, but also when we talk about policy is that uh, there's no, no one size fits all. It has to, it has to work locally, um, not just with a broad brush stroke. 